0: Well, good morning again everyone. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16 is on page 822 of the Bible underneath your seats if you need a Bible this morning. Friends, today is the last sermon in Matthew for about the next eight months or so. Uh, we work through Matthew every fall semester, and it may seem a little bit random to kind of just stop right in the middle of uh, Matthew 17, uh, but that's what we're going to do. We're going to stop in the middle of 17, then we'll pick it right back up in August or so, and God willing, we're going to follow that same pattern uh, of making our way through Matthew every fall uh, until we conclude sometime in the year of our Lord 2036 or so. So, um, hope you're still here by then, uh, friend. Right now, friends, right now, the the plan in January is to is to preach two sermons in, in our disciplines of a of a godly church series that we work through periodically, and then in the middle of January, we're going to start a series in one of the bread and butter. Uh, books of the faith, uh, the book of Romans, and so I would encourage you even now to be reading the book of Romans ahead of time. I hope to include uh, resources about the book of Romans on our online bookstore. The, there's a link to it on our on our website. We'll we'll flag that when that happens. But looking forward to the, that to that series together again, beginning in January. Friends, our passage this morning in Matthew 16 follows on the heels of Peter's confession of faith. In Jesus and Jesus's subsequent promise to Peter and the disciples to to build his church his gathering of people of the redeemed upon the foundation of Peter and the Apostles as they confess and proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ it's a pivotal point in Matthew's gospel isn't it now that the the identity of Jesus Christ has been accurately confessed by one of his own now Jesus's focus turns to the cross we're going to see in the coming chapters that even the the geographic trajectory of, of Jesus' ministry is now set toward Jerusalem. Peter's confession was in Caesarea Philippi in the far north. Now Jesus will start moving southward with the shadow of the cross looming over him as he goes. Let's begin reading in uh, Matthew 16, starting in verse 21. We'll read all the way down to chapter 17, verse 13. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John, His brother, and led them up a a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them, and His face shone like the sun, and His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Him. And Peter said to Jesus, And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, if we weren't taking such a long break from Matthew after today, I I might preach this text in two different sermons, but... Because obviously there is so much here, but the reason that I'm preaching both uh, this section on discipleship and then the transfiguration account in Matthew is that I I believe that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Spirit, means for them to be read together. They're joined at the hip, and uh, hopefully after this sermon you'll understand and see why. Friends, here's the main idea of the text that I pray will be the main idea of the sermon this morning. The pattern of Jesus' life forms the nature of your discipleship. Certain suffering, yet certain glory. So, Christian, fix your eyes on glory. The pattern of Jesus' life, well, it forms the nature of your discipleship to Him. Certain suffering, yet certain glory. So, Christian, fix your eyes on the glory. Of Jesus. Two points this morning mirroring these two big sections of the text. Number one, the unavoidable suffering of the cross. We'll see that at the end of chapter 16 in verse 21 to 28. Number two there in the transfiguration, the unsurpassed glory of the King. The unavoidable suffering of the cross, the unsurpassed glory of the King. Beloved, I pray that this portion of God's word would fix our eyes this morning on the beauty and the glory, the power of Jesus, our King, and that what we see together would cause us to follow him no matter the cost. Number one, the unavoidable suffering of the cross. Look at verse 21 again of chapter 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It's clear, isn't it, that Jesus is is self-aware what his mission as the Messiah is. He had come to die and to rise again. He predicts what will take place with detail, doesn't he, that turns out to be accurate. It was indeed in Jerusalem that the Jewish religious leaders delivered Jesus to Herod and then to Pontius Pilate to be crucified. And it was indeed on the third day that Jesus was raised in vindication by the Father. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must go. This is, friends, a divine Must. It is a biblical fulfillment. Must. Jesus must go. He understood passages like Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 and Isaiah 52 and 53 and Zechariah 9 that, that forecasted that the messianic servant of the Lord would indeed suffer for the sins of his people. Jesus was aware that, that he is the Christ who would fulfill God's word and be that, that sin bearing sacrifice to reconcile sinners to God and so forgive their sins. So he must go. Prince, this is why Jesus came to earth, isn't it? It's why we celebrate Christmas. He was born to die and to rise again, to rescue us from eternal hell and restore our relationship with our creator. Friends, there is no Christmas without Good Friday. And Easter but notice Peter's response Peter took him aside began to rebuke him saying far be it from you Lord this shall never happen to you the idea of a suffering Messiah who would be killed by the authorities was unthinkable to Peter after all the Old Testament says that the Messiah was to reign over the people's enemies on he was to reign on David's throne forever Surely the Messiah king would, would subjugate his enemies, not be killed by them. Friends, I think at this point, Peter's concept of Jesus' messianic mission, it, was, it seemed to be more national than biblical. He expected Jesus to set Israel free from Roman domination and then expand Israel's borders, his reign across the globe. Peter's retort, or Jesus' retort to Peter, could not have been more sharp. He turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." Friends, I don't think Jesus is being overly dramatic here. He wasn't being needlessly severe. Friends, he heard in Peter's response the hiss of the one who had tempted him at the outset of his ministry. Remember when Satan in Matthew 4 took Jesus upon the mountain and and promised to give him all the kingdoms of the world if Jesus would just bow down to him. He promised Jesus glory while bypassing the cross. Peter wanted the same. He wanted Jesus to have all the kingly glory without the suffering. He wanted him to wear the crown apart from the cross. He wanted all the gains of that rule without the pain. So Jesus called Peter's thinking for what it was. It was satanic. Peter stood in between him and the cross. And so Jesus told Peter, get behind me. I'm going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. You know, friends, from the perspective of the the world, pursuing a life that leads to death seems like utter nonsense, doesn't it? It seems like a colossal waste. But in the wisdom of God, this very death not only would be the means of God's redemption, this very death would be the path to glory. On the cross, Jesus would be lifted up, glorified as the Lamb of God, even as He hung naked and shamed by men. And on the third day, what did the father do? The father would stamp the receipt of the son's sacrifice for sins with the words accepted and paid in full. And so raise him powerfully from the grave and install him on the throne of heaven. Suffering first, and then glory. The cross, and then the crown. This is the pattern of the Messiah's reign. You see now why Jesus gives the instruction that he does in verses 24 to 28? The pattern of Christian discipleship, of your discipleship, of our discipleship and following Jesus is no different. Following Jesus is tailored after his cross-shaped pattern of certain suffering and certain glory. Look again at verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself And take up his cross and follow me. In other words, if you're going to follow Jesus, it means putting loyalty to him over the preservation of self. It means so loving him and and trusting him to the degree that you're willing to die on the path of faith and obedience. Beloved, a, a willingness to die for Jesus isn't for the most radical of Christians. It's baked into what it means to follow him. The type of faith that lays hold upon Christ, the type of faith that that lays hold upon Christ in trust is faith that prizes him as your treasure that you value above all, even above your life. I think this verse is so often used to describe a kind of muscular Navy SEALs type Christianity, right? Take up your cross and follow him. It's for warriors of Jesus. It almost becomes a source of pride. But beloved, don't you see that discipleship to Christ should take on just the opposite flavor? To take up one's cross and to follow Jesus is to live humbly as a response to his love who died to reconcile us to God. Isn't it interesting, I find it interesting that Jesus talks to his disciples about bearing their cross before he ever says explicitly that his suffering would include the cross. You wonder if, when the disciples watched Jesus bear the weight of his cross as, as he staggered up the Via della Rosa on the way to Golgotha, if they wondered his, if they, if they remembered his words, "Take up your cross and follow me." He had not asked them to do anything more for him than what he had done for them. Brothers and sisters, a willingness to suffer for Jesus, I think, will no doubt evidence itself in thousands of smaller choices before that moment would ever arrive. Death to self isn't so much the capstone of Christian martyrdom as it is a characteristic trait of following Christ. It, it works itself out in tenaciously making a break with your sinful desires on a daily basis. Even putting the good things that you've made God things back into their proper Place. It looks like this. It looks like saying, "I want Jesus more than success. I want Jesus more than money. I want Jesus more than sexual freedom. I want Jesus more than popularity." Teens, I I want Jesus more than Instagram likes. I want I want Jesus more than fill in the blank. Friends, can you honestly say that? This type of mindset doesn't happen on accident, does it? It's not going to happen by kind of Christian osmosis. You know why? Because sin still dwells within you, yes. But also, also the messengers of this sinful age are constantly screaming the exact opposite. I don't know if you've noticed this, but friends, our culture has enthroned the self as king. The preeminent preeminent values of our culture here in the West are self-discovery and self-expression and self-gratification. It is like the air that we breathe. It is so pervasive. The world will tell you that the truest humanity that you can achieve is to discover and express yourself. True joy and life is is found in, in kind of finding myself and then living out what I find. That's why the sexual and gender revolution makes sense in the Western mind. There is no higher authority than the self. And I know this is not the first time you've heard this from me, but I come back to it so often because I want to equip us to fight the fight of faith against this type of satanic thinking. The world says, find yourself, express yourself, love yourself, please yourself. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. It just so happens that Jesus knows that true joy, true life, true satisfaction, both now and eternally, are not found in gratifying yourself or expressing yourself, but in denying yourself in order to follow him. Look at the theological, spiritual logic that Jesus uses to undergird such obedience. Verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is speaking of two different ages here, isn't he? He's casting our vision to eternity. Friends, there is a type of earthly saving of one's life that turns out for eternal loss. But there is a type of earthly losing for Jesus' sake that winds up in eternal gain. Jesus has put the choice before you. It's like a fork in the road, right? Which way will you walk? The path of living for yourself, according to the priorities of this age? Well, it's going to end with a cliff of destruction. That road does. That might look like the safe path, but it leads to certain death. On the other hand, if you choose the path where you forfeit the priorities of this age to follow Christ, you'll find that that path, although it looks really hard and really fraught with obstacles and hazards, it's the path that leads you to truly that which is truly life, both now and for eternity. In the preface of his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis wrote, I think earth, if chosen instead of heaven will turn out to have been all along only a region in hell. And earth, if put second to heaven, to have been from the beginning a part of heaven itself. You see what Jesus is showing us here? His pattern of suffering and then glory is indeed our pattern too, friends. Suffering now, self-denial now, glory one day, eternal life one day. Don't sacrifice the eternal on the altar of, of the immediate. Set your mind on the things of heaven and follow Jesus by faith. Jesus continues the logic of why it's better to do that in verses 27, 28. For the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. You know, Jesus has already talked implicitly about judgment when he talked about losing one's life. Now he makes it explicit. Every human being on this earth has a booked reservation at judgment day. And notice who it is that does the judging. It is the son of man. First, Jesus spoke of the son of man's suffering Now of his exaltation and enthronement in the heavens. Friends, this is the language of Daniel 7 that we read earlier. Where in Daniel's vision, he saw one like a son of man reigning with a global dominion on the clouds of heaven with all the peoples of the world serving him. Yet in Daniel, as Jasmina read, if you notice, it was the ancient of days who sat in the heavens as the judge of all. He was the one surrounded by angels before whom the books were open and humanity was judged you see what Jesus is saying? He is merging the two roles. He refers to himself as the the son of man, this exalted human king. And yet, and yet, he shares the same glory as the ancient of days. The angels who surround God's throne are his angels. God's right to judge is now his right to judge. The son of man is the son of God. And what will happen when this exalted Son of Man, our God, comes? Jesus says He will repay each person according to what He has done. That's verse 27. He will judge justly and fairly according to our works. Not that we can work to merit our standing before God, but rather our works will prove whether we follow Jesus by faith or not. In other words, why? Why, again, should you willingly and joyfully deny yourself now and take up your cross and follow Jesus? Well, friends, because that great and awesome day is coming. It's coming. If you're in Christ this morning, if you're trusting him alone for your salvation, that great day of judgment should fill your heart with joy and hope. Every decision of self-denying faith, every ounce of suffering in this age will prove in an instant to be eternally Worth it. Our king will bring his reward. But if you're not a Christian, friend, if you're not trusting in Christ to save you from the wrath of God through through his sacrifice in your place, friend, don't casually dismiss what Jesus is saying. To reject Jesus now guarantees his eternal rejection of you then. Let Jesus' words about the coming day kind of be like spiritual smelling salts that wake you up to the reality of that which is truly life. You are accountable to God. You will stand before Him. But God has made a way for you to be reconciled to Him through full trust in Jesus. The unavoidable suffering of the cross. Number two, let's turn to the transfiguration. The unsurpassed glory of the King. You know, even though many of the disciples will end up being killed for the sake of Christ, Jesus assures them, doesn't he, in verse 28 of chapter 16, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What does Jesus mean by this? I mean, after all, we have spent some 36 sermons thus far in Matthew's gospel talking about the fact that the kingdom of God is not merely future. Right? That, that the reign of God has been ushered into this here and now by Jesus through his coming, through his death and resurrection. It's an already not yet kingdom reign. We still await the full display of that reign, don't we? When, when Jesus will put death to death forever and wipe away every tear from our eyes and remove every trace of sin from this world forever on that great day when he comes again. I think it's clear that Jesus here in verse 28, is talking about the not yet, isn't he? He's talking about the full display of of kingdom power because that's what he's been talking about just in verse 27 that comes right before it, right? So when he tells his disciples that, that some of them won't taste death until the Son of Man comes in his kingdom, I think the disciples would have understood Jesus to be talking about that great day of the Lord, the great day of future salvation and judgment when he comes again. So so how could Jesus say that some of them wouldn't taste death until that day. It's 20, it's 2022, right? All of the disciples have long since died. We're still waiting for Jesus to come again, to come on the clouds of heaven in his eternal reign. What happened? Did Jesus kind of miss it this time? Is, is he no better than the local weatherman? Right? He's, he's right most of the time, but every now and then he's, he's like way off. No, friends, Jesus wasn't pulling a fast one on the disciples I think his statement is fulfilled in what's recorded here at the beginning of chapter 17. What happened on the Mount of Transfiguration functions like an anticipation, a sneak preview of the day when Jesus comes again in his kingdom glory. The some standing here of verse 28 who won't taste death until they see the kingdom are Peter, James, and John who witnessed Jesus in his full glory on the Mount. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, friends, all link the statement about some not tasting death until they see the kingdom right next to the transfiguration. They all link it right there. And if you were to turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1, and you read what Peter says about this great event, he uses the transfiguration of Jesus into glory as historical proof that Jesus' second coming is indeed on the way. That's in 2 Peter chapter 1. So what what happened to Jesus on the mountain is like the ultimate movie trailer, isn't it? Except this time it's the ultimate reality trailer. This isn't fiction. This is the most true, most real reality we could ever know. I I want you to think how encouraging this is. How gracious it is of Jesus to reveal himself in this way. He's just given the disciples the incredibly hard news that to follow him means suffering for him. It's the nature of discipleship. It means yielding their life to him, to be willing to follow him to death, to say no to selfish ambition and sinful pleasures for a greater glory that is yet to come. And now Jesus, what's he do? He peels back the curtain of his human weakness to reveal the glory of exaltation and what every follower of his can expect to share in when he comes again. We will share his glory. Look at verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. We don't use the word transfigured much in our English language, do we? Simply the Greek word that's translated there, it's uh, it's the word for transform. It's actually the Greek word where we get the word metamorphosis from. Put simply, Jesus was metamorphosized, right? He was transformed. But it's not as though Jesus became something that he was not before. Rather, the transfiguration of Christ is about the revealing of who he truly is. The text says there on the top of the mountain, Jesus' face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Have you ever tried to stare at the sun? Kids, maybe just because your parents told you not to, try to stare at the sun. How long can we do it? Right? You couldn't for very long, I'm guessing, without going blind. It's a it's a it's a light. The sun has a light so brilliant that it blinds. And yet here is Jesus radiating light like the brightness of the sun. Friends, do you remember another figure in redemptive history? whose meeting with God on a mountain caused his face to shine. That's right. Exodus 34 tells us that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, after receiving the law from the Lord, his face reflected uh, God's glory so brightly that he had to put a veil over it. In fact, Matthew drops multiple literary clues in these verses to let us know that we're supposed to see the Mount of Transfiguration as kind of a new Sinai. Both include a high mountain. At Sinai, the cloud of God's glory covered the mountain for six days. Here, Matthew also drops a six-day time marker. At Sinai, Moses took three individuals up on the mountain with him. Here, Jesus takes his three. In both events, a cloud of God's glory descended. Both included a voice of God speaking from the cloud. Both included the terror of those who saw and heard. In other words... Matthew intends for us to read the transfiguration through the lens of Sinai and the Exodus. Even, even Elijah's appearance here with Moses confirms that. You remember back in 1 Kings 19, Elijah too met with God on the same mountain when God renewed the covenant with him in 1 Kings 19. So, so why does this matter? It's simply, is it simply that we're kind of to understand that Jesus is the new and better Moses? Yes, in part, Jesus mediates uh, the new covenant, whereas Moses mediates the old. He mediates the new and better covenant God is making. Moses led God's people in the Exodus from their slavery in Egypt. Jesus leads his people in the new Exodus out of our bondage to sin and death. But friends, it's so much more than that, isn't it? Think about it. On Mount Sinai, Moses' face reflected God's glory. Here, Jesus' face is God's glory. Moses put a veil over his face to hide the brightness of the glory from the people of Israel, but here, even Jesus' clothes are reflecting the glory of his illuminated body. It's like the difference between the moon and the sun. When you look up in the night sky, which are amazing here in Arizona, praise God, and you see the moon, you're not seeing any light from the moon itself. The light of the moon simply reflects the bright light of the sun. That was Moses at Sinai reflecting God's glory. But friends, in his transfiguration, Jesus' glory was not derived from any outside source. It emanated from himself. He is the radiance of God's glory, as we read in Hebrews 1. To see Jesus is to see the glory of the Father. This is not Jesus just putting on some sort of mask. Rather, this is the veil of his humiliation being temporarily lifted for us to behold the glory that he had with the Father before all worlds, before his incarnation, and the glory of his resurrected and exalted state, the God-man, when he returns. Friends, in light of Christmas, Jesus' transfiguration glory should remind us of how far he stooped, how far he stooped when he came into this world to save us. The squalor of Bethlehem was merely step one in Jesus' emptying himself, condescending to the lowest place to lift us sinners to the highest place. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Brothers and sisters, I feel so insufficient to communicate the magnitude and the weight of what this text is meant to show us. The beauty and the glory of what this text shows us about Jesus is just so overwhelming that human words fall flat. But I do know this. I do know this. The Holy Spirit wants you to fix your eyes on the glory of Jesus Christ because it's only by seeing and savoring Jesus' glory that we are changed to become more like him. And if I'm right, that the transfiguration is a sneak preview of Jesus' glorious return, then this text should remind us that, the friends, the way we draw strength to deny ourselves and follow Christ isn't merely like kind of by pulling ourselves up by the moral bootstraps, to grit our teeth in rigid self-discipline, but rather to be empowered and sustained by our glorious hope. Listen to Romans 5, 2. Romans 5-2, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. You see that cross-shaped pattern again? There it is. How can we endure our sufferings now? How can we draw the strength to deny the pleasures of the world now? How can we say no to sin and yes to Jesus? Is it simply by telling ourselves, stop doing that. Cut it out. No, friends, the only way to kill the glory of sin in your heart is to replace it with greater glory. The only way to dampen the allure of the world's pleasure is to replace it with greater pleasure in Christ with a greater hope and expectation than anything the pleasures of this age can offer you. It's to live for something more, something and someone with an infinitely more glorious beauty than any sensual or carnal appeal. The scripture assures us that spectacular glory awaits us. Matthew thirteen forty three says that we, his followers, will shine like the sun, just like Jesus. When Jesus returns in glory, we will actually be transfigured with him. We will be like him, says the Apostle John, because we shall see him as he is. Beloved, set your heart on the glory of God in Christ and lean forward to anticipate his coming and then watch him transform your life now more and more into his glorious image. There's a few more details of the story, aren't there? The text says that two men appeared in glory and talked with Jesus. And they weren't just any two men. They were Moses and Elijah. I think the best explanation for their appearance is that they represent the law and the prophets. Uh, They're together a powerful summary of the old covenant. Their appearance there on the mountain signifies that Jesus, the Messiah, fulfills all God's promises to his people. You know, of all the conversations in the Bible, this is one that I would have loved to be a little fly on the rock to hear, right? But friends, we don't have to wonder what Moses and Elijah discussed with Jesus. Did you know that? Luke tells us in Luke 9 that Moses and Elijah talked with Jesus about his departure that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Literally in the Greek, that word departure is the word exodus, They talked with Jesus about his exodus, his great deliverance, that he was about to bring his people out of their sin, bring his people out of death into life and resurrection. Just six days earlier, he had predicted this very thing, hadn't he? All God's promises in the Old Testament are aimed at the cross. Verse four says that Peter, as typical spokesman for the group, pipes up and says, Master, you ready? It is good that we are here. Thank you, Captain Obvious, Peter. Well done. Slow clap. And Peter suggests to Jesus in verse thirty-three that they make three tents. Excuse me, that's not right. That's not verse thirty-three because there are not thirty-three verses of Matthew seventeen. Uh, that would be verse four. Excuse me, <laughs> little uh, little mistype there. Uh, Peter suggests to Jesus that they make three tents or booths as dwelling places for him for Jesus for Moses and Elijah. I, I think that Jesus is likely or excuse me, Peter is likely referring to the booths that the Israelites made out of leafy branches uh, after the after the exodus, the Feast of booths or the Feast of Tabernacles that they celebrated. I think he 's rightly grasping something of the messianic importance of what he 's seeing. He wants to this experience just to last as long as humanly possible but what happens next shows why his suggestion was was so off because what happens next was the cloud of, of the glory of God descended upon the disciples throughout the Old Testament this is the cloud that displayed God's glory in such a way that those who viewed it did not get totally annihilated by the brightness of his glory The cloud enveloped Jesus, the Old Testament witnesses, and the disciples, and then they heard a voice. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You see, Peter's suggestion that that they erect three booths for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, it, it placed Jesus alongside Moses and Elijah as equals. But friends, Jesus deserves a place of unsurpassed glory far above them, far above all the mediators and messengers that pointed to him. From the cloud, the father thunders what he had already proclaimed about Jesus at his baptism. There is none like him. He is utterly unique. He is my beloved son. God forcefully confirms what Peter had confessed just days earlier. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of the living God. And because of the son's unique and unsurpassed glory, the voice of God tells the disciples, listen to him. God is confirming to these disciples that Jesus is the great prophet foretold by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 18 15. The, the Lord, your God will raise up a prophet like me from among you, from, from your brothers, Moses said. It is to him you shall listen, listen to Jesus. Did you notice the shift in this passage from seeing to hearing? At first, everything is about sight, Jesus' dazzling appearance, the appearance of Moses and Elijah and what the disciples saw, right? But when the cloud descends, there is a pivot from seeing to hearing. Friends, it reminds us that the way that we behold the glory of God in Christ in this age is not by seeing Him physically, But by listening to him and obeying his word and the gospel. We don't live in the age of the eye. We live in the age of the ear. We walk by faith in Jesus' words until he comes again and our faith turns to sight. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're you're holding out on Christianity. You're holding out on following Jesus because it just seems too distant, too detached to be real. If you could just see what Peter, James, and John saw, well, then you'd believe. Well, friend, Peter himself would disagree with you about that. Listen to what he wrote in 2 Peter 1. This is Peter, who was there with Jesus on the mountain. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In other words, you do not need a Mount of Transfiguration experience to trust in Christ. You need His Word, and we have it. More fully confirmed and trustworthy to which we must listen. It's in Christ's word that we see his glory. And as Paul writes to the Corinthians, through the word, through that very glory in the word that we are transformed, transfigured, as it were, into Christ's image from glory to glory. Verse 6 says, When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. When they heard the thunder of God's voice, they had a Sinai-like uh, response, didn't they? They were terrified. But immediately Jesus steps forward to calm their fearful hearts. The glory of Jesus that induces fear is the same glory that alleviates it with His grace in the gospel. Friends, the same holiness that would cause you to tremble steps forward in love to bear your sin and shame and reconcile you to the Father. Verse 8 says, and they lifted up their eyes and they saw no one but Jesus alone. The echo of God's voice fades. The cloud lifts. And it's Jesus only. Moses and Elijah are gone so as not to distract the disciples' gaze. We no longer need a mediator, do we? We have Christ Jesus. We must listen to no one else. You know, if you're like me, your experience as a parent is often trying to get your kids' attention. And so many times I'll, I'll say something to Cooper, or I'll say something to Canaan, especially when they're very little and they're just all over the place, distracted by everything, right? And I just so often have gotten their little faces and cupped them in my hands and turned them to me. Canaan, listen to Daddy. Friends, I wonder if through his spirit this morning, Jesus would cup your head in his hands, as it were, so that you look at him and you listen. There are so many competing voices vying for your attention, calling your name, trying to get the attention of your ears, the voice of the enemy, the voices of this age that would beckon you to find your satisfaction in anything else than following Christ. The voice of your unbelieving heart, the voice of your guilty conscience. Beloved, don't let these voices drown out the voice of Jesus and his call to follow him and him alone. Isn't it wonderful that the rhythms of Christianity prescribed by Jesus are that one in every seven days we gather to listen to his voice? Isn't that wonderful? Every Lord's Day, we open up the Word to hear Jesus' voice. Friends, what's happening during the sermon is not me making sure my voice is heard as your pastor, but me as a mouthpiece of heaven, making sure that Jesus' Word comes through loud and clear. My friends, listen to the Word of Christ Jesus. He alone can give and sustain your life. There's one more scene in this text. Let's read again, starting in verse... Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Just like he had done just days earlier at Peter's confession, he charges Peter, James, and John to keep what they had seen private. He didn't want people to misunderstand the nature of his mission as the Messiah. And that's why he prohibited them to say anything until after his resurrection when the purpose of his kingship had become very clear. In verse 10, the disciples are reflecting on what they had just seen, and they ask Jesus why the scribes say that Elijah must come before the Messiah, like the the scribes say that. I think the scribes rightly understand or understood Malachi 4, 5, and 6, to prophesy that before the Messiah is coming, an Elijah-like figure would come to prepare the way of the Lord. So, if Elijah just appeared on the mountain with Jesus, and Jesus is the Messiah, then what does that mean? So, Jesus takes time to help the disciples understand that the Elijah figure that Malachi foretold, well, he had already come in the person of John the Baptist. He was the great prophet that prepared the way of the Lord. But the religious leaders did not recognize him as such, did they? They... they encouraged Herod to imprison John, and and eventually had him beheaded. But look at what Jesus does. Jesus links Elijah with John, and then John to himself. Just as John suffered and died, Jesus says, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And now we've come full circle, haven't we? this passage is bookended with Jesus predicting his own suffering and death. See, Mount Sinai, friends, is not the only mountain that the Mount of Transfiguration echoes. It not only points us backward to Sinai, but forward to Mount Calvary. The Mount of Transfiguration was a private display of an exalted Jesus. There he wore dazzling clothes and stood on a high mountain flanked by two Old Testament figures. All was light. On the other hand, Mount Calvary was a public display of a humiliated Jesus. There his clothes were ripped from his body and divided as he was lifted up upon the cross while flanked. By two criminals, all was darkness. At the transfiguration, God thundered his approval of the son. At Calvary, the voice of God was silent as he poured out his holy and good wrath for your sin and for my sin upon his son who willingly gave himself for us. The coming kingdom glory that Jesus previews in his transfiguration is known and experienced only by us because he first endured the shame of the cross. The cross and then the crown. Suffering and then glory. This is the way of following the king by faith. Beloved, the pattern of Jesus' life forms the nature of your discipleship. Certain suffering yet certain glory. So brothers and sisters, fix your eyes on glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess this morning that the cost is high to follow you. But the joy and the grace and the mercy and indeed the glory is higher, is greater. Oh, Father, assure our weak and struggling hearts of that reality. That that when the allure of sin and selfishness and addiction is set before us, when we would rather choose the path of ease than the path of faithfulness, oh, Father, help us to remember that our Lord Jesus has gone before us. He is the author and the perfecter, the founder and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now even seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We worship you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this glory.